Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz and Pastor Tony Trussoni. Good day, listeners of the podcast. Unfortunately, I'm usually kind of uh, having some talk usually about baseball with my co-host Ben and the podcast, but unfortunately, uh, Ben is not able to join us for this interview discussion that we're going to be having today. But uh, So I thought about you know spending some of the time maybe finding ways to do an interview at a Chick-fil-A. Uh, we're big fans of Chick-fil-A in my household, and I think uh, Ben was is as well in his household. Unfortunately for us, even the idea of doing a Chick-fil-A uh, podcast from a Chick-fil-A is difficult, as now in Maine, the closest Chick-fil-A to us is about 45 minutes away. But when thinking about Chick-fil-A, uh, so my mind often drifts to one of the best experiences I had from Chick-fil-A, which was not saying their spicy chicken sandwich, though I do like that. Uh, my <laughs> mind drifts to my friendship with Timothy Jacobs, Professor Timothy Jacobs. Uh, I was blessed to work with a friend of mine, that a fellow seminary student, and uh, now a man and that's serving the Lord in many ways uh, over the years, and we really enjoyed getting to work together and you know cleaning floors and and serving some customers at Chick Fil A. We got used to saying "my pleasure," so it is my pleasure, <laughs> listeners, to introduce to you our guest for today, Professor Timothy Jacobs. Hi, Tim. All right, uh, thank you for that <laughs> intro. It, it it was a pleasure to. Worked side by side years ago at Chick-fil-A while in seminary. It certainly was. So I uh, know Timothy Jacobs is uh, really has got gone a kind of a unique path compared to many from seminary. He's uh, I know he's loved philosophy and a lot of critical thinking avenues, even from when I knew him years ago in seminary. I'm aging myself, I guess, but aging both of us. But uh, Timothy Jacobs has really explored a lot of that and been able to really minister and even be able to kind of get the gospel out there through some work as a philosophy professor. So what exactly does a Christian philosopher such as yourself do, Tim? Yeah, sure. So um, you uh, you mentioned kind of uh, being an odd duck. I certainly am a little bit of an odd duck in the sense that my, I think my interest in philosophy started when I was like 11, which makes me sound like a super nerd. Um, I, I was playing a video game, and there was a character in it named Socrates. And uh, I just like was curious who this guy was. Of course, I didn't actually do or know any philosophy until uh, probably late high school. I was introduced to Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which is just basically a story about um, about learning and about uh, uh, loving wisdom and coming to that. Um, but eventually, you know, when I got to college, I went to California Baptist University and I majored in philosophy. While I was there, um, my mentors, uh, my pastors, multiple mentors of mine encouraged me to go to seminary to make sure that I was grounded in the Bible um, as I continue on in philosophy. And so I went off to seminary where I met uh, Tony and uh, got my MDiv and my THM at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, and then towards the tail end of that, I also 
helped co-plant a church, did that for a couple of years, then went to Houston to pursue my PhD in philosophy, and I'm working on my dissertation right now, but I've also been teaching philosophy. I've been teaching philosophy at community colleges and online institutions and universities uh, since 2017, so um, about five years now, and that uh, that has been almost entirely in secular contexts, which has given me the joy and uh, privilege of frequently being able to um, just evangelize with students, tell them about the gospel, tell them, do apologetics with them. As I teach them how to think well and how to pursue and love wisdom, of course, my pursuit and love of wisdom is all directed at and ordered by God. So I can't talk about wisdom without talking about God. And it's just, it's been a joy uh, to do that. So more, if, if you, uh, if you're talking more broadly about just what is, I guess, what is Christian philosophy, I kind of think of it like that there's kind of an old Protestant saying, like God wrote two books, right? He wrote the Bible and he wrote creation. He reveals himself in both of those. And uh, they help interpret each other. So I try to explain it to my kids like this. Like when, when, um, when we're putting together some Legos, you know, there's instructions. Or when we're putting together, when we're opening up a new remote control car, you know, there's instructions. There's the, there's the thing out there and there's the instructions. Or when I was trying to uh, fix the electrical in my car, which I am not a car person. It was a bad idea to do that myself. But when I was trying to do that, I opened up the instruction manual. And as I'm looking at this instruction manual, I realize that the instruction manual doesn't actually match the car. And so looking, looking at the car, the actual car in front of me, helped inform my reading of the instruction manual hmm. and or uh, some parts of it what, what it was is the instruction manual was just sort of generic for lots of different varieties of models and so when I looked at my car and I brought that observation that information to the instruction booklet that allowed me to understand the instructions better but That's of good. course um, I, I was, and so, so, you know, this is the relationship between observation of the world in philosophy um, and the Bible. They help interpret yeah. each other. And so when, I, when, when a Christian philosopher looks at the world, observes the world, observes, you know, me, I'm part of the world, my own conscience, my own thoughts, and bring that information to the Bible, it helps us understand what's in the Bible better. But of course, you know, when I'm looking at my, the reason I'm looking at my instructions for my, uh, my, you know, my guide for uh, a toy that I'm putting together or for my car, it's because there's information that I can't get just by observing the machine. Yeah, that's good. All of the special hidden features and uh, mysterious aspects of whatever is under the hood in my car that is clarified, and I'm given a lot more information from the instructions. So I like to say 
that the relationship between philosophy and theology is that philosophy is sort of your starting point, the foundation, and then theology finishes it off. It completes it. And you can't really have, ultimately you can't have one without the other. And a lot of the, a lot of the uh, theology that we take for granted um, has been built up over uh, centuries through Christian philosophy and theology together. So I've kind of talked your ear off, and uh, okay. <laughs> I'll let you uh, respond to that. Yeah, that's a good introduction. So, by the way, I'm curious about uh, what I, I did not know that about a video game <laughs> part of it. So, what video game is this? Yeah, there was there's a video game called Civilization, and there was ah. it built into the game. At least at the time, I haven't you know played this for a long time. There was something called a Civilopedia, which is basically an encyclopedia entry for every little thing in the game. So there was like a one paragraph blurb about Socrates saying he's a philosopher. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I would love to just, you know, have a make a career out of sitting around and thinking all the time. Nice. That's great. So, so, yeah. That's, that's a positive statement about Tim Jacobs. Uh, he's been wiser than I have for a long time because at that age in video games, I was probably trying to get the golden gun in uh, the golden eye game. So, rather than thinking about philosophy. Well, I was trying to do that as well. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anyhow, no, that's fantastic. So uh, it sounds like you're basically telling us that philosophy and theology, hence Theological Family Ministry Podcast, is like peanut butter and jelly, right? So good deal. There you go. That's right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, Tim, if you could tell us about your work with the Davenant Institute, because uh, I know that you've kind of gotten some exciting ventures ahead with that. Yeah, sure. So to kind of explain what Davenant is doing and what I'm doing at Davenant, it's helpful to think of um, the kind of the state of the church today. And I think that it's it's pretty common sense to know that uh, there's problems, there's there's issues, there's things that we're struggling with in the American church today, and um, a lot of uh, the answers that are pre being proposed are not very historically rooted, not rooted in time-tested uh, doctrines and theology that has been passed on from generation to generation. Um, and uh, there's, you know, there's 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 new political philosophies that are coming out, new, you know, trends. We have cancel culture. We have uh, critical race theory. We have mask mandates. We have um, you know, should us asking ourselves, you know, should we engage in some kind of civil disobedience? What is the relationship mm. between church and culture or church and government? You know, we're not the first generation to ask these questions. And we shouldn't be trying to reinvent the wheel because if we, if we are trying to just reinvent the wheel, just sort of me and my Bible and no look at history or Christians who have pioneered these paths before us, then... I have probably a 50-50% chance of just getting it wrong, or maybe worse, maybe more like a 90% chance of just getting it wrong if I try to just solve these big problems with just me and my Bible. Um, now, it's good, right? If you have nothing else, then it should be just me and my Bible. That's yeah. the starting point. Um, but we should also draw from the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, who have tackled these questions over the years. I mean, it's 
it's the history of Christianity that gives us things like the Trinity. I mean, Trinity is not a word that's in the Bible. It was um, the, the philosopher Aristotle. It was Aristotelian categories being used by early church fathers that allowed us to formulate the orthodox view of the Trinity or of uh, Jesus as being fully human and fully divine. These, these uh, primary doctrines that, you, um, that are the foundation of our faith were clarified and organized by the work of um, early Christians who didn't see a big difference between theology and philosophy. Really, it was just thinking about stuff and using the Bible while you do it. And there wasn't this big, huge divide between philosophy and theology. But then, of course, you know, along comes the so-called Enlightenment a few hundred years ago, and people are trying to think explicitly without the Bible, right? People are uh, saying everything that came before was the Dark Ages, and now we're enlightened. We're self-enlightened. And so it's just me and my reason without the Bible. Yeah. And so because of that, um, that kind of influence, that culture around us that's been built up over the past several hundred years has given us, even as theologians, even me in seminary, um, there was an attitude always of, let's read the latest and greatest, right? If a book is 80 years old, mm -hmm. like, I'm not even going to know, I'm not, I'm not going to bother reading it. I want to read uh, the latest and greatest exegesis or biblical commentary. I'm not going to go read you know, John Calvin's commentary or Aquinas' commentary or what does Augustine have to say about this? Um, but so because of that, I highly value Bible colleges and seminaries because I, I went to one for five years and I loved every minute of it, but I also got to see that there's some significant gaps, some things that we're not equipping people for, not equipping churches for, um, and the Davenant Institute is looking to fill that gap. It's not looking to replace seminaries. Uh, most of the students who go to the, th this is a place that provides uh, publications and resources and courses for uh, the church as a gift to the church. And most of the students who go to the Davenant Institute are people who have just finished seminary or they are in seminary want to supplement. And what the Davenant Institute does is, uh, I would say it has two distinctives. Two, to, to oversimplify, it has two distinctives. One is that it provides the only seminary-level classical education approach to uh, learning theology, where it's, it's rooted in um, us reading the reformers, us reading medieval theologians, us reading Antonicene fathers, and all of the classes center around learning where our theology has come from, those kind of timeless principles. And uh, the second thing is it's, it's a ministry because it's um, presenting itself, we are presenting ourselves as a gift to the church, right? So uh, it is... Um, entirely funded by donors, not by exorbitant tuition and federal student loans. So th resources and articles and journal publications and classes, the, the prices are kept to a bare minimum 
So this is this is what Davenant Institute basically is, and my specific work at Davenant is going to be teaching, writing articles, actually uh, guidebooks, uh, as well as helping some with administration. Right, it's, it's the teachers who do the administration as well, um, and uh, eventually also some local ministries, some reading groups or speaking engagements, things like this. And of course, that depends on. Um, Right now, I'm just getting started. That'll depend on uh, the fundraising aspect of it as well. No, that's great. So that, that's really wonderful. I, I really appreciate your work and and Davin it. It's it's interesting that you know uh, Tim and I had a conversation on the phone earlier this week. Actually, uh, things kind of came together pretty quickly with this, but. I really heard some exciting things about Davenant uh, recently, and then I saw, uh, I knew how Tim has been really working on valuing philosophy for Christians for a long time, and, uh, you know, it was really cool to see these kind of things really come together in a really wonderful way, so, and, you know, not to push too much in this sense, but I do want to say, listeners, uh, if you are looking for a ministry to support, uh, this is a particularly good one to support, and I know Tim is a re- will be a real value to that ministry. Now, should yeah, thank you. If if you if you do um, want to investigate more, I encourage you to look at Davenant Institute's website, which is just davenantinstitute.org. Um, and also, if you'd like to, if anybody's interested in uh, my specific work and potentially supporting me, uh, I encourage you to go to my website at tljacobs.com. You can just find out more about me, what I'm up to, and uh, and even subscribe to my newsletter, even if you can't support. Just support through prayer, and that would be encouraging as well. All right. Now, should Christians really care about philosophy, Tim? I mean, is this, isn't the Bible really enough? I mean, I've heard Christians say that about all kinds of things. No creed but the Bible, no philosopher but the Bible, no Socrates but the Bible, right? You know, uh, Right. I mean, I, I, I hear this all the time as well, and um, this is part of the problem, actually. This, this sort of baked-in uh, assumption in this question of, of, isn't the Bible enough? Because, you know, we have this great historic Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, Bible alone, right? And um, But without actually reading the Reformers— uh, without actually understanding some of what they meant by it in context, it tends to get applied in sort of any random way. Like, all I need is the Bible. I only need the Bible. Well, I mean, what at, at least at minimum, what sola scriptura means, what Bible alone means, is that the only uh, explicit message that we have from the Lord, the only special revelation that is authoritative is the Bible. So um, if someone else comes to us and claims to have had a direct prophecy from the Lord, then uh, we're not going to treat that as authoritative as we do the Bible, because it is the Bible alone that has that kind of special revelation authority. But as I said, the... uh, God, the, the God that we love and serve wrote two books. He also wrote creation. And this is verified in Scripture, right? In, in Scripture itself, in, uh, particularly in Romans 1 and 2, 
Uh, it says that we can know about God from the things that he made. We, we uh, can know about his invisible attributes. And it's, it's because everyone has a conscience and everyone can know basic morality with, of course, an admixture of error. Uh, but people, everyone knows basic morality. And it's, it's that uh, that makes people without excuse, even yeah. if they have not heard about Jesus. It's that uh, that makes them without excuse. And so why should a Christian care about philosophy, right? Why should a Christian care about it? Well, it's because these two books inform each other. The Bible is constantly assuming that you have some modicum of common sense, right? That you have lived in the world mm-hmm. and that you can observe the ant. And that doesn't mean walking in a line without question and don't use your mind and, you know, serve without thinking, you know, ours is but to do or die, not to question why, kind of a thing. But um, that's not common sense, right? Common sense is, okay, He's the Bible, when it refers to the ant, it's saying we need to plan ahead. We need to um, store up for our future, you know, things like this. And uh, the Bible, th- that's just some tiny, tiny example. The Bible is constantly appealing to our observation of the world. And be- the reason for that is not just as sort of an apologetics or evangelistic tool, like, okay, it's good to do that, like when you're first preaching the gospel to somebody or first becoming a Christian. But once you're a Christian, then you don't need philosophy anymore, right? Philosophy is just apologetics. Well, absolutely not. I mean, apologetics is really more just in the realm of evangelism and only a little bit of philosophy. Philosophy for the Christian, I mean, the word philosophy means love of wisdom. And wisdom for us is a person, you know, the divine logos, Jesus Christ. And so loving wisdom means uh loving God and pursuing his wisdom, thinking his thoughts after him. I mean, as the Bible says, uh, renewing our minds so that we're not taken with, you know, with vain philosophies. Ephesians uh, 4 um, says that God, that the Holy Spirit gifts people, gifts teachers and prophets specifically to equip the saints for ministry and for building up the body and, um, so that we won't just act like immature children, that, that will be tossed sort of to and fro by the waves or the winds of, of doctrine or of every human cunning or craftiness of um, the world. And so the job of a Christian philosopher, the, the, the role of philosophy for the Christian is to help us think well. When somebody comes to you and they, says, they say, this is what the Bible says, this is, this is my theology, this is what I believe, um, the way you test it is by thinking about what they say and comparing that with the Bible. That whole thinking process is what helps us determine what is a good or a bad interpretation. Does this actually match the world? Does this match common sense? Does this match wisdom? Right. That's what philosophy is doing. And so it's it's when we go back to our example of you know me with the hood of my car up and I've got my instruction manual. Yeah. If I don't have if I don't have any lick of common sense, then um, I'm gonna th- then I'm not even gonna be able to make the connection between 
the object in front of me in the instruction manual. I'm going to start to do, I'm going to read the instructions and do all kinds of random things. So for, for example, maybe a, an example I remember more clearly because we just had Christmas. We've been putting together a ton of Lego sets uh, with the kids. <laughs> and one thing that they frequently do is they, they look at the picture in the book, in the instructions, and they turn it around backwards. They turn a Lego piece around backwards or whatever. And with Legos, you know, if any of you put Legos together, that's going to mess up the whole creation, the whole operation, if you just turn something around backwards. And so it takes me, with my maturity and wisdom, to come in there and say, hey, actually, you need to turn it around like this. You know, so it's not enough to just have the instructions. Or, you know, they've got remote control cars, and they're looking at the instructions, and they're trying to make sense of it. They can't even understand the instructions and how they match up with the car um, until I come in and say, you know, with my common sense and my experience with toys in the past, hey, you know, the batteries have to go in like this. And when you, you know, yeah. flip the lid, you know, you got to do it like this so you don't break it. So all of this extra common sense is not in the instruction book. So there's all kinds of stuff that the Bible assumes we know um, or from observation that it doesn't explicitly tell us, right? It doesn't uh, teach us all of the tools we need to interpret itself. It doesn't teach us that overgeneralization is a bad thing. The Bible doesn't teach us that um, stereotyping is a fallacy or that um, chronological snobbery is a fallacy, right? It doesn't teach mm -hmm. us fallacies. It doesn't teach us... Um, a lot of these kinds of things. It assumes a lot of those kinds of things. Yeah. Because, again, as I said, theology completes philosophy. But it, that's because it's founded on philosophy. You, need, you have to have both of them or neither one of them are going to make sense. And, in fact, yeah. that's what we see in modern higher education is that those two have been so significantly divorced that frequently you have Christian philosophers who are going off the rails in their doctrine but then you also have Christian theologians going off the rails in their doctrine, too, because they're not talking to each other. Yeah. Thankfully, uh, I mean, I don't think I'm anything special, but I followed some very special advice to get theological and philosophical education uh, to hold those two together. Yeah. So we've seen the, how Christians need philosophy, but to kind of look at the opposite of it, uh, what makes a Christian approach to philosophy distinct? So basically I'm asking, why, does, why do philosophers need Christianity? You know, it's funny, it's funny that you ask that because, of course, you know, my, my title and my jobs is philosopher, professor of philosophy and things like this, but I don't think I'm doing so much philosophy as just theology. Uh, but I'm doing, I'm, because I'm doing them, I'm doing them together. For the Christian, when we're studying God, God, well, let me put it this way. Um, the ancient Greek philosophers were religious. It's, it's only until recently, it's only in recently, post-enlightenment, that you have a bunch of atheistic philosophers. Of course, you've had, you always had atheists, but in terms of prominence, only really in the past couple hundred years. And so... For the ancient Greeks, for the Stoics, for Aristotle, for Socrates, things like this, the highest thing to think about in philosophy was God. Yeah. But they didn't. They didn't, as the Bible in Romans one clearly says. You know, they they didn't have all the answers. They sort of know it incoherently, and they think of God um, with a big admixture of error. 
So, um, so we need the Bible. The Bible finishes. The Bible clarifies. And so um, the the uh, so philosophy needs theology to finish it, to correct it, to verify what is true and correct what's not true, and then theology go on to. Uh, be built up by philosophy. I, I think of theology as the highest science, but in a cumulative sense, not in a. It's it's like reading, right? Um, or or like the gospel. We don't learn to read and then we're done with it and then we never do it again. It's we learn to read so that we can read all the time, and so we learn philosophy so that we can use philosophy when we're doing theology. And theology is cumulative, and so for the. Um, the non-Christian doing philosophy, they're doing philosophy with one with you know, with both arms tied behind their back and they're they're mm. and blindfolded and however you want to say it. Um, but you know, even a blind squirrel can find a nut every once in a while <laughs> and the Bible verifies that. And so um, so they they are gonna be incomplete without the Bible. Well, that's good. So why do you think Christians have a tendency to ignore philosophy? I assume that's you would agree with that statement. And if so, do you think it's problematic or not? Oh, yeah, I think that it is. I think that some of the reason is because that's sort of the spirit of the age is thinking of philosophy as a primarily secular activity, um, probably just because of the prominence of atheist philosophers over the past 200 years. But like I said, when, you know, I am a student of the history of philosophy, and you look at the history of philosophy, and it's dominated by uh, people who were religious. I mean, it's dominated by Christians, but even before Christ, uh, it's, it's, it's um, dominated by people who still believe in God, and that the highest yeah. form of philosophy is thinking about God. So, so there's a sort of I guess you could say kind of a cultural stereotype that philosophy is a secular kind of thing, um, but that's kind of just indicative of our historical moment. And but I think there's I think that because of that and because of its actual influence on the church, our tendency to chronological snobbery, which means we only want to read the latest and greatest, we in the church neglect reading about previous Christians. And when we do that, we start to misunderstand uh, things like Sola Scriptura or um, several other doctrines. We start to lose some of these doctrines. And um, in, in that, when we read verses like Colossians 2.8, where Paul is telling us to avoid, uh, avoid vain philosophies, you hear the word philosophy, and you think, oh, that's a secular thing. And then we, um, without even realizing it, we sort of read it as saying all philosophy instead mm -hmm. of vain philosophy. Of course, you know, you, you could just as easily put theology in there, right? Yeah. Warning against vain theology. And in fact, in Colossians, that's what they're referring to is a specific sort of theology that was a heresy that was going on in uh, Colossi at the time, so Paul is correcting it. Paul is um, warning them against this, uh, and so it's not philosophy that's bad. It's it's vanity, it's foolishness, it's falsehood that's bad, and so philosophy gets this bad reputation. And I think that um, we 
we inherit some of these sort of cultural this cultural baggage around philosophy uh, without realizing it. And mm-hmm. actually, former you know former great great Protestant thinkers thought of philosophy as a great asset. You know, they call, they would call it the handmaiden of theology. Um, of course, that doesn't yeah. mean the slave or a certain um, luxury that is dispensable. I mean, how many of us, how many of you have, have a maid, right? I mean, somebody mm-hmm. might have a maid, but this is, today this is thought of as like a luxury for rich people. That's not what we're talking about when we say philosophy is the handmaiden of, of theology. We're talking about um, it is a helper that really for the flourishing of theology is essential. That's good. You know, Tim, you're going to make it hard for Christian filmmakers to find a good villain in their next corny film. Oh, gosh. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 tough. You know, philosophy and logic are highly under You know, I, I, I was watching a Disney movie uh, recently, like with my kids, and the bad guy was bad because they were following wisdom. And, of course, the moral of the story, it's a Disney movie, right? The moral of the story is yeah. follow your heart not wisdom. And um, we as Christians, I think we, we know that that's wrong, but it still ends up influencing us if we don't have the categories to exactly understand, okay, why is this bad? Why is this good? I yeah. mean, there's another, you know, another Disney movie, I think it was uh, Captain Marvel. Um, the bad guy <laughs> is literally named Intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the lesson of the movie was you know follow your heart sort of thing i mean this of course this is a secular world but it influences the church all the time i mean we don't mind not use that language but we i mean listen to our worship songs it's 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 still there yeah so how does a firm grip on philosophy help us engage our contemporary culture does it just help us realize that captain marvel was the worst marvel film Oh, gosh. Um, well, it can. You know, I mean, that's some of it. I mean, because we are influenced by the things that we watch or what we see on Twitter or whatever. But, uh, you know, f- philosophy, oh, gosh, it, it, uh, that's, it's almost too big of a question to answer. I mean, philosophy has to do with all of your thinking. And so it has to do with wisdom. The wiser you are, the better decisions you're going to make, the more you're going to be able to notice problems in uh, culture and let them not influence you or in reverse how to influence our culture influence the people around us and uh, you know that's that's what philosophy is about is you know of course uh, of course I know people are going to be thinking oh well isn't that what theology is about theology well you know I mean theology is primarily about um, well today anyway theology is primarily about exegesis of scripture what does the scripture say and that ultimately is going to have to be applied to our contemporary context so for example you and your bible sitting alone on a couch are probably not going to know what critical race theory is or how to respond to mask mandates being imposed on churches so like which bible verse is going to tell you whether or not your church should follow mask mandates or how they should follow or things like that, right? There's, yeah. there's, um, you can do exegesis all day long and not find the answer to that, but you can gain principles from the Bible and use philosophy, use 
the ideas of our forebearers and um, understand, use that to help you understand how to respond to things like critical race theory, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, seminary didn't prepare me for engaging with critical race theory. In fact, just as a sort of aside, when the Southern Baptist Convention voted in favor of using critical race theory, I was there, and I actually voted for it because I didn't have a clue what it was at the time. And the voting sort of just went by so fast, and they didn't really explain things. I wasn't prepared uh, for that, but I should have been. I had already done five years of seminary, and I voted in favor of critical race theory, right? Um, but then, of course, afterwards, look it up, and I found out that this is uh, quite an explicitly anti-Christian philosophy. Um, these are the kinds of things that philosophy can prepare us for in our current struggles. Now, is this philosophy and critical thinking stuff you've been talking about, is this just really for kind of academics like yourself or adult Christians? Do you have to have a PhD to navigate this kind of stuff? You know, I'm, so I'm teaching a Sunday school class right now, you know, or, or I will be starting on Sunday, and I taught one in the fall, which is basically Christian philosophy. And, um, of course, I'm not teaching all of the, you know, technical aspects of philosophy. I mean, it's like it's like physics or like math, you know. I'm I'm helping my kids with with adding and subtracting, with multiplication. Everybody needs to know how to add and multiply. Um, but if you really want to go down the rabbit hole of math or science, you can eventually become, you know, a quantum. You get into quantum physics or yeah. you know astronomy and all <laughs> kinds of complicated stuff. And that's what PhD in philosophy is doing. Yeah. Now, it's those physicists that what they discover that ends up allowing us to have rockets that shoot satellites up and now we have cell phones because thanks to what they're doing. But I don't need to understand all of this complicated physics just to use my cell phone. So it's good that Christian philosophers with PhDs exist and are doing what they're doing um, in, in a similar way that it's good that there's theologians out there who are doing all sorts of technical work on the Bible in order to produce a commentary that your pastor reads when he is yeah. uh, preaching a sermon to you. And so, um, but when you're sitting there in the pew listening to a sermon, you're doing theology. In a similar yeah. way, when I'm teaching Sunday school, we're, we're doing some basic philosophy um, at the ground level. We're adding and subtracting. We're multiplying. We're doing that version of philosophy. You know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, in the weeks ahead, I'm going to be talking about the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Or how is God similar or different to us? Or how, what are some critical thinking tools that we can use to sort of not be fooled by the plausible arguments of politicians or by... Um, you know, the plausible arguments of, you know, my cousin's friend who once said this about the Bible. Um, you know, these, these tools, these sort of critical thinking or logic or philosophy tools help us address a lot of those things. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. So now how can we make this understandable to young people? And I'm assuming you think we can, given the fact that, again, you were 11 when you decided you wanted to be a philosopher. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you know, I, I have kids and I also, I help in the youth group at my church and, um, you know, in, it's a similar with any other big concepts, right? You translate it 
down to their level and what's relevant to them. So, of course, that's only going to start by me, myself, understanding how it's relevant, right? You, us adults, understanding how it's relevant. And then once we understand how it's relevant to us, then we can sort of translate it down to their level. So, you know, I have kids. My kids are elementary school level. And um, I, I talk to them about philosophy, but I don't talk to them about, uh, you know, the, the um, action, action theory, or I don't talk to them about, um, you know, some complicated, like, philosophy of mind and the mechanics of a choice and, uh, you know, technical things. But my, my oldest daughter, um, when she was eight, started asking questions about the problem of evil or yeah. how do we know that God is real mm. when I can't see him? Or um, what about people who have never heard about Jesus? Like, we need to go. We need to find that. Like, are they, if they die, like, what's going to happen to them? And um, th- things like this. And these, these are things that can be answered by philosophy. And so, you know, I tell her, hey, look at the world around us. Look at creation, you know. Romans 1 says we can look at creation. Here is a simple version of um, intelligent design argument that she can understand. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, hey, this is, a ba- this is baggage too heavy for you at this yeah. age. Because um, she's pretty, you know, she's pretty young. My kids are pretty young, elementary school. But I also teach them the difference between good and bad reasons. And yeah. so one thing is, um, one thing that's, I think prominent in the church in America today is uh, sort of accidental legalism. We tend to make new laws all the time, right? You got to be a homeschooler. You got to be um, this. You got to. You got to. Uh, you have to vote for these people. You have mm-hmm. to follow this exact pol- political um, idea, or you can't say these words. You know, things like this. We sort of create these rules, and. Um, there may be good applications, but we tend to, to cultivate a legalism in a lot of our churches. And we can do that in our parenting if we are teaching our, our, our kids to obey without thinking, obey without question, obey without understanding. Of course, we need to start our obedience with just obeying authority um, without understanding. I mean, the whole lesson of Job is we need to trust God even when we don't understand, still obey. Yeah. Um, but there's the Bible is constantly telling us. Jesus now calls us friends. He introduced, he, he tells us the mysteries. He, um, Paul is constantly telling us we need to stop acting like immature children and have maturity in our wisdom. The whole book yeah. of Proverbs, you know, um, it's for growing. So when, as we're teaching our kids, as I'm trying to teach my kids, um, sometimes, hey, you just need to obey without question, right? And I do teach them, I try to teach them anyway, um, that the more they obey, the more I will give them the reasons for why they should do what they do. I, I tell them that understanding reasons is a privilege. Uh, and if they are, if, if me telling them reasons is going to encourage them to argue, I want to give them fewer reasons and just give them more, you know, spankings. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but ultimately, I want them to grow up into adults that can make decisions without me making the decisions for them. I, and so I, I give them opportunities to fail. I give them opportunities to make a choice. And afterwards, 
Um, you know, I, I talk them through, okay, now why did you, not just what did you do and was it good or bad, but why did you do it? Were those good reasons or bad reasons? I know you don't want to go to school today, but uh, do you have a good reason or a bad reason? Is it just because you're tired or are you sick and you don't want to yeah. get your friends sick? So constantly telling them about reasons. And then I, I even use words like theology and philosophy. I say, hey, you know, theology uh, is when your good reasons come from the Bible. And philosophy is when your good reasons are all related to God. And that you learn it from the Bible and from uh, other things uh, that you observe, right, from common sense. So, mm. I'm, I'm, you know, my kids are elementary school level and youth group. I can talk a little bit more, but I'm, I'm doing uh, some middle school boys, and we talk a little bit more advanced uh, concepts. But teaching them young, you know, I mean, there's a lot of football going on right now, right? And I just told them, uh, my youth group last night, I said, hey, you know, you need to practice things like integrity and honesty now when you're young because, like, these football players, you know, they started when they were young, and that's how they became pros when they were adults. So if you want to be a good father, a good husband, a good mother, a good wife, a good uh, servant of the Lord, good church member, a good um, a godly Christian with wisdom, you need to start young with simple concepts. And I think we as parents can do that if we teach them not to just obey without question, but yeah. obey for good reasons. Yeah, so that's good. You talked about the local church and uh, some of your ministry in that with it. Uh, and by the way, the some of my ministry of introducing philosophy to young people in churches, I'm not kidding. About a year ago today, I was teaching junior hires the trolley problem, which I'm not sure. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Some of, awesome. them, some of them got a kick out of it, so I'm not sure how awesome. everyone felt, but anyway, but uh, that is fun. The trolley problem is all, always fascinating. Uh, anyway, look it up, listeners, if you don't know what it is. So yeah, it's so, yeah, that's right. But uh, now, how can the local church introduce the next generation to our rich Christian philosophical tradition? I mean, some of the things, you know, you've talked about, how, you know, the past, you know, there was this kind of bridge in the way that sometimes there isn't today. So how can we, you know, may, uh, enliven Christ, young Christians to really value that in a way that they don't often you know, the, uh, one of the things I value most about being an evangelical Protestant is that our tradition uh, brilliantly weds evangelism and education and learning because it's all in the Great Commission. I mean, the Great Commission says, go, tell them, but also it says, teach them, right? Make disciples. Yeah. By teaching them, and all through the Bible, you know, Ephesians four, like I mentioned, is the Spirit equips uh, prophets and teaches. So our our religion is intensely educational. I mean, this is why many languages, many written languages today, came out of Bible translations. It's why um, medieval Christians invented the university. So it, our our religion is one of the few that. Uh, has education as like a primary tenet of how we express our faith and how we um, function as a church. And so what does that mean? Well, our, our religion is based on a book, right? 
on a book. So you got you got to know how to read, but not just read the Bible. Read people who have read the Bible down through the ages. Not reinventing the wheel, but relying on. Uh, I mean, not blindly following tradition. This is where this is where philosophy kicks in, right? We need to be able, yeah. be able to when people disagree about what the Bible says. We need to have um, enough understanding of philosophy and logic to be able to discern, okay, who's right about what the Bible says. But we're not even going to be able to ask those questions if we haven't been reading other people who interpret the Bible. Right? And so we have these essential doctrines like the Trinity or um, things in ethics like the natural law, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is foundational and has been seen historically as a a very important orthodox tenet, something like the natural law. Um, among the Protestants, they defend it, and nowadays it's it's sort of thrown out. I know uh, it's a shame. Yeah, it it is a shame. And so, uh, so how so? What can you do, right? What can you do? First, first is start reading, right? Uh, the adults need to read in order for um, them to show children and youth um, and younger people. But they need to read as well. Read other things, um, right? Reading again, like I say, you know, reading isn't something we do just when we're young, and then education is finished when we're eighteen. It's like no, the Bible is constantly telling us to press on toward the goal, which is perfection, which is maturity, which happens through wisdom, through the renewing of our minds, through the cultivation of virtue. So we need to be lifelong students of the Bible and of people who read the Bible. Go back and read something that was written more than 10 or 20 or even 100 years ago, right? Read something by Spurgeon. Read something by Calvin. Read something by Augustine. Now, I can make a specific recommendation. I would love to see more people reading uh, Augustine's Confessions. Mm. They think that since it's old, it's going to be hard. It's going to be not very accessible, but man, if you read it, it's just some guy sitting on a couch praying through his life. And it is super personal. I mean, this is written in, uh, what is it, the 400s? I'm probably getting my dates wrong. The, uh, the, the 300s or 400s. Yeah. And he's writing in Latin. And it's eloquent. It's beautiful. It is so personal. It's like reading somebody's journal. And just, just imi- wanting to imitate that kind of... I mean, you read this guy, and he's like, wow, like, God is like his best friend. It's like, I want to be like that. So just, just start reading, and then that'll show other people. And then, you know, there's, there's certainly uh, lots of other kinds of resources out there. Like, uh, this is what we're doing at Davenant Institute, right? We're providing classes. Anybody can take the classes, right? You don't have to be a seminary student. You don't have to have uh, some advanced degree. Yeah. Um, we're going to... There's classes, there's workshops, there's conferences, there's journals, there's just articles, there's books. Um, there's lots of stuff to read. And so that's, I think, the first place. And then, you know, children's ministries are great, right? Uh, as adults learn it, they can start to incorporate it into uh, Sunday school lessons, into youth group lessons, into sermons, into things like this, just like we do with theology. That's, we do those things with theology. So everything yeah. we do with theology, we do the same with philosophy, and we will have, uh, or, or, you know, and the, the history of our doctrines, uh, we'll have a much more, we'll continue that rich tradition. It's not just something in the past. 
that sort of ended a couple hundred years ago, right? We should continue yeah. it. Sort of, what are the, you know, the, the saying, the reformed saying of uh, reformed and always reforming. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean new is always better. That means we're always going back to the source, right? Ad fontes, back to the source, back to the Bible, back to those who pioneered these critical doctrines. Uh, and we need to imitate that for our young people as well. That's good. Thank you. Uh, I think this has been a really helpful discussion interview, and uh, I really hope that you know listeners that while you're you know maybe you're on the drive-through line of Chick-fil-A and uh, the, you're about to hear my pleasure from one of the employees, well, I want to tell tell you it was my pleasure personally, Tim, to have you on the podcast today. So, well, thank you very much. You know, it's been my honor. I've I've enjoyed being invited onto this and talking about these things, of course, because. You know, I talk about these things all the time. So somebody asking me about my soapbox is a great opportunity to blab. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I encourage anybody out there to uh, just take a moment to look up DavenantInstitute.org um, and uh, look on my website too, tljacobs.com. Just getting started, just got a, recruited to Davenant Institute. So, um, you know, subscribe to my newsletter so you'll, you'll hear about it more or, uh, you know, consider... Uh, consider chipping in so that yeah. might be able to continue these these teachings and this opportunity. And we will provide some links for that in the description of the podcast. Oh, great. So just go good. ahead and look at that. So, again, thank you again, brother. It's really good catching up with you too. Uh, the it's I'm really grateful for the friendship that we've had for many years, and I, I'm grateful that we'll be able to talk about these things and billions of years from now in the kingdom. So hopefully, That's with, right. with Augustine, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that'll be a joy. Yeah, well, uh, but even just with Jesus himself, the amen. wisest philosopher who has ever lived. Amen. So I think that's a good way to end, brother. You have a All great right. day and God bless. You. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.